Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Emma Powell, news editor. How are you doing, Emma? Good, thank you. Excellent. And James Norrington, how are you doing, James? Good, thanks, John. Excellent. You've written the cover feature this week, uh, infrastructure, which we're going to talk about shortly. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Some, something we all need, something we possibly all need a, a little bit of in our portfolios. Uh, to as a well. certain extent, yeah. To a certain extent. Well, we, we like to qualify things on the Investors Chronicle. Uh, never a definitive answer. Um, right, let's start with news, though. Uh, lots going on, so much so that you needed extra pages to yep. cover the news section uh, this week. Emma, what, what's the big story? Big stories. We've had a lot of profit warnings, actually. Not very good news for companies. Maybe so, we should start. Yeah, let's, with... start with, let's start with profit warnings. I mean, this is actually uh, that the context for, for for these profit warnings is actually there was there have been some uh, earnings numbers coming out from the US overnight. They've not been so great. Are, are we seeing a slowdown in growth? Uh, yes, I would say so. <laughs> yes, basically, there, there is a definitive answer. <laughs> um, although, obviously, as we do allude to in seven days, uh, I think people are thinking we did have slightly better UK growth. So. I think people are flagging interest rate um, rise in the UK. What was it? It was a. It was a. It was the expectation was 0.3 percent growth, and and the reality and the, and what came in was 0.4 percent growth, subject to revision, of course, as it always is, and that is enough to prompt talk of an interest rate rise. Well, yeah, I mean, p- people think it's nailed on. Go on, James. What are you going to say? I was just going to say, as we are in the FT building, I ought to point out that pre-Brexit, that for, it would have been about 0.9 before <laughs> this. So you know, uh, for our just uh, eyeing a job over there, um, have to get in that remainder point. Thanks, James. Thanks for that. Anyway, so growth is slightly better than, than expected. Still somewhat anemic, you could argue. Certainly, uh, as it's been frequently pointed out uh, by our colleagues in the building, one of the lowest growth rates in the G20. Brexit is partly to blame, so they say. But but company-specific stuff is not Brexit. No, related, no. It? So it's let's more... talk about some of those. What What's happening? What What's going wrong in, in the companies that we cover? Let's take it on a case-by-case that, basis. That's the only way you can take it, isn't it? So, exactly. So, maybe let's start with Interserve. This has been a very long-running one. These problems, I'd say that the problems really with Interserve, I mean, they meant they first mentioned delays with public sector contracts and things like that, which hurt their support services division. Um, their energy for waste contract, which they've exited. There's been a lot of problems there. Basically, provisions keep rising. And I, I think that's... to build one of these things near us. Huge opposition to it. I can imagine. I mean, chuck, chuck it, basically chucking rubbish into a big of course, yeah. furnace and generating it. People didn't really like it. No, I expect not. <laughs> um, it hasn't worked out well for Interserve either. And they've also had some problems with their with their construction contracts. But really, the, the real kind of nub of the problem and what's more worrying, I think, as somebody that, you know, that would hold shares in Interserve, I think, would be the fact that these provisions keep rising. So the, the, the latest thing last week was they came out and have said there'll be an additional £35 million provision for the energy for waste contract. That was um, on top of £160 million that they had already taken in 2016. And more worryingly so, uh, the net debt to adjusted cash profit ratio required by its financial covenants, they think there's a very realistic prospect that they won't meet them. So... Very worrying. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to see companies getting close to their debt covers. Exactly, exactly. I mean, this this takes us into. I mean, there is actually another story about from the outsourcing sector in the magazine this week, which is Carillion, which we, I mean, which has already had its several its profit, big profit warnings. warnings. Yeah. What we're seeing now, I mean, the shares have, have recovered quite sharply. In fact, I mean, uh, amazingly enough, they appear as the, it's in the top spot of Algae stock screen this week. Yeah, as, which a, as, a, as an unloved would be value surprising. Share. Would be surprising. It's, it's a ratio that is developed to Zeus. Mm. It's uh, it, it's it's an interesting idea. You know, he's he 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 likes to think outside the box as algae. But the, you look at the results of that screen; they're horrible. I mean, these companies you don't really like. Carillion's at the top. Carillion's had a nightmare. 
Are things bouncing back for them? Are they taking the right steps to get themselves back on track? They are taking, so they did have some good news this week, obviously after, I think they've lost uh, down about 75% this year or something. Um, But they did have some good news. They've managed to secure some um, additional funding, about 140 million. They've also deferred... From their creditors. Right. They've also managed to, um, they're basically going to defer their pension contributions to their pension scheme. That's not something that the pensioners would like to hear, you would assume? No, I I assume the the trustees probably, you know, it's not ideal for them, but... Yeah, I mean, actually, again, I'm sorry to uh, go off on a tangent here. Pension schemes are important, especially in terms of cash flow and the ability of a company to pay dividends, which is something that Phil Oakley explores in his feature this week about high yielders uh, and how safe those yields are. Yeah, actually, you do have, obviously, a company has a duty to pay cash or or some other way of trying to fill the deficit. But actually, there is also rules around, um, you know, you can't, as a pension scheme trustee, demand so much if it's going to put the company in danger. And if a company like Carillion, you know, they've had such high debt levels and it's really started to mount, there's no use that company going under by contributions. Presumably over the years, you know, being an outsourcer, they've taken lots of they've taken lots of staff across from the from their customers on what do we call it? Two pay they call it, don't they? Yeah. Uh, and presumably they will have to honor honour their pension schemes, which is why I assume they have a fairly large pension obligation there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got about six that they pay into. So, so, so quite substantial. Um, so they are on the right tracks, but they're but on you're the not right track. Yet, but that... I just, I just think again with with Carillion and Interserve, it's it's the debt problems, and it's the fact that these, you know, they just really need to start generating cash. But there's been so many contracts that just haven't worked out for them. The costs associated with those contracts are very uncertain and that's that's the worrying thing I think it's, well, the, the, it's the uncertainty if the costs keep going up well this goes back to a conversation that we've been having for some time and I don't mm. think we've ever really boiled it down to an answer which is you know it's the, it's the idea of outsourcing is it just broken is the idea actually a nice idea that doesn't work in reality because we've seen a lot of trouble from this sector in, in, yeah. in recent months yeah I mean we've, we've had Capita you've had Mighty Interserve obviously a couple of years ago, you had Serco and G4S. It's very difficult to find an outsourcer that hasn't had problems. And I think it, it boils down to the fact that, you know, there was this big drive amongst the public sector for people to outsource services. But at the end of the day, and, and even Rupert Soames, when he took over at Serco, admitted they'd been trying to win contracts at the expense of actually thinking about is this going to make us any money? I mean, and I think yeah, it is that kind of drive to the bottom at undercutting each other to win business. Yeah, predatory pricing, you could almost call yeah. it, which is something that Robbo talks about in his, uh, his Taking Stock column this week. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've always thought, you know, if, you're, if you are a, a public sector organisation, you provide a certain type of service, you obviously, you think you can get that done to somebody telling you they can offer you that more cheaply uh, and they will take it off your hands and you spend less on, you know, whatever, picking up the bins or whatever it might be. How do they offer it, you know, more cheaply than exactly. the private sets can deliver it? I can only think there is a, either a degradation of service or that the contracts have actually been underpriced and don't reflect the reality of delivering them. Well, hence some of the problems Indeed. that are going on Indeed. now where, again, to serve where the costs keep rising because they've obviously miscalculated the costs, haven't they? And they don't seem to be the only ones. No, no, it, no. I would say this is a sector-wide problem. I mean, it's, you know, is it is it... I mean, the outsourcing sector is very broad, broad, as you know, you, you used to uh, cover it yourself. Yeah. Um, there, there are, are, are there types of outsourcers that are, are safer, you would say, than others in yeah, terms yeah. of the type of service that they're providing? Yeah, I think I think a lot of the problems come when you have these very broad brush outsourcers. When I mean, if you get some specialist ones, like I think we mentioned earlier, actually, Johnson Service Group, which does hotel linen. 
because it just specialises in doing a particular service and it's good at it, then I think, you know, a lot of the issue has been, and I know that's why Serco have now kind of concentrating on the UK, is trying to, I think, spread yourself too thinly and trying to do everything because yeah. there has been such a drive towards outsourcing. And, and also doing low value stuff. Exactly. It's very hard to compete, isn't it? How do you add value cleaning? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's very low margin work anyway. It's very difficult. That's why there is a drive to the bottom. Yeah. We, we, we also like uh, Babcock in the outsourcing sector. Babcock, yeah. But that's because, you know, although it has come unstuck, obviously with its uh, Magnox contracts, where again, oh. that, that was to do with uh, the government basically didn't assess what the cost was going to be. Although that's very difficult, you'd say, nuclear de- decommissioning, because the problems that could crop up are almost unknown. It's funny you say that, because the nuclear industry is something that you mentioned in the cover feature, James, as being especially problematic as an infrastructure investment too. It's, uh, it's something that uh, some of the managed funds actually avoid, um, infrastru- uh, nuclear infrastructure, because the high upfront costs of it, it also has huge stranded asset risk and the, all the political, the, um, the social, uh, the ESG considerations around investing in infrastructure. It's, it's something that's blackballed from, from some of the funds. That's, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I'll just say on Babcock, the reason, even though they have had those problems with the nuclear, they also do a lot of work for the Ministry of Defence, because it's high, high barrier to entry, lots of recurring contracts, lots of recurring revenue, that differentiates them. That's what you need, I think. I mean, to be be fair, on the the Magnox point, you know, uh, I mean, a company like Babcock would never be considered an infrastructure investment because it's a recurring service. They're they're not, basically. They're Um, they're not making money from the service rather than from from, uh, owning and leasing the infrastructure itself. Exactly. Um, There is a job to be done in decommissioning the UK's ageing nuclear fleet. uh, And, and you know, that Magnox problem was a kind of one-off. Yeah. And there is work for them there. Yeah, I mean... it's a fact this work has to be done and they need somebody that has the specialist expertise to do that. So Yeah. I mean, let's move on from outsourcing because, as I say to my mind, it's not a sector I would invest in. Absolutely no way. Yeah, it's very risky. I very, think. very risky. I think, you know, you've got to, I think you're essentially playing and catching the cycle in that, in that sector. But there have been some more worrying warnings from, from what you would consider more reliable companies. Uh, I'm looking at Unilever here, specifically. Yes, Unilever. Well, um, there's actually, there's kind of two strands to this. One is they've actually just announced today that they're unconditionally um, buying back Dutch preference shares. So there are some rumours that they may reconsider their dual-headed structure. So they may just list in London or just list in the in, in the Netherlands. Oh, my goodness. I presume speculation will abound as to which, which way they uh, they ultimately decide to well, go. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, but also, I think, the, the, you know, the thing with uh, Unilever that's really been hurting them is um, their developed market sales have been not great. We, we've kind of alluded to this uh, recently in terms of uh, private label booming, as it were. We, we, we have recently tipped McBride, for example, which makes private label personal and household goods, cleaning products. Are we seeing, are we seeing consumers starting to trade down? Well, it's funny you mention McBride because there is a tip update in this week's magazine. Oh, um, fancy that! <laughs> which I wrote, in fact. Um, so tell me about McBride. I mean, yes. what are we what are we seeing here? Is this are these two sides of the same story? Well, again, they did experience a bit of a blip in their in their sales during the last quarter. That was very much the, the kind of aerosols and personal care division, um, which is actually in rundown. So we did keep it on a buy because the rest of the business is doing okay, and I think I'd view it as more. They have been trading very strongly. It just seems this quarter was a bit of a 
a blip, I would say, more than a longer term trend. Whereas Unilever, this is a longer term trend. So the long-term trend being that developed markets are weakening quite substantially. Yes. I mean, they're doing very well in in, in experiencing volume growth uh, markedly up in in the emerging markets, Unilever. Mm. But, yeah, developed markets bringing them down. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't doesn't sound great when a company like Unilever, which has become a stalwart of many, many investors' portfolios, is is in trouble. It's a bond proxy as well. A bond proxy, exactly. Exactly. Which is just like the infrastructure stuff we're talking well, about exactly, too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's all, it's all kind of heading towards this coalescing towards. Unfortunately, the... everything is, and that's uh, <laughs> that's because of the QE bubble. So it's, well, it's, as long as it doesn't sort of drop down altogether at the same time, which is one of the worries. Yeah, well, let's see what happens as they try to tighten in the months ahead, which is the subject of my editorial actually. Um, let's Alex. I know uh, I haven't actually introduced Alex Newman, who's sitting over in the control room. But Alex, I mean, we've talked about outsourcing and how awful it is, but uh, there is outsourcing in your sector, which is the oil and gas sector outsourcing generally in terms of the companies that are providing the the rigs and, and the services that, that the likes of Shell and whoever need to go out and drill. And, and actually things are looking a bit brighter there. I'd qualify that. It's looking brighter potentially for, uh, for one company which we'll talk about this week, which is hunting. It's looking brighter because they are largely exposed, exposed to the US onshore businesses. So the, the shale boom, they deliver perforated systems and uh, various services to the, the shale drillers, which have been expanding at a probably unsustainable clip. Um, they put out a trading statement this week where they said they're likely to return to a pre-tax profit this year. They've booked huge in, uh, impairments and uh, pre-tax losses for the last two and a half years. And the shares, you know, consequently up about 10% uh, as of yesterday. So you could take that as a sign that the sector is is turning around. But the read across for most of the oil and gas services companies listed in London is not huge. We've got the likes of uh, Wood Group, which merged with, merged with Amic Fostawila there. They've got heavy North Sea exposure. That's still in decline or flatlining. Gulf Marine Services, you know, they're, they're, they're slightly more focused on Middle East markets. Still a bit tepid there. So the read across is is not exact. But, you know, people are looking for any sign of an uptick in oil and gas services fortunes because they're so highly geared to the fortunes of the market. And for so long now, we've been thinking this is going to turn. Are, are they geared to the, the oil price then, essentially? Yes, in a in a in a slightly um, uh, react, reactive sense, and obviously commissioning is only going to be done, or, or project commissioning is only going to be done when oil companies feel they have uh, some sort of price stability. So there, so there there is an indirect link, and obviously oil companies are only going to drill if they think they're going to make money. So they're only going to commission oil and gas services companies if there are projects out there. So there is there is a there is a link, but it it, it can tend to lag certainly the share prices of of the oil uh, and gas suppliers and producers. Okay, I mean, it it is interesting. You have actually tipped in this week's issue Mm. uh, an oil services company. Yes, right. So, uh, I mean, this would seem a very contrarian view. Yes. And it's a very new company as well to the market, that is. Yes, I can understand how you, you know, obviously I've given the impression of slightly... uh, uh, You're just teasing us, Alex. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Um, So, the the company we've we've tipped this week, uh, I I won't mention their name, you can can buy the magazine, but... um, they are. They have a very, very specific business niche. They have been benefiting from the distress in the in the sector of over the last five years, and been buying up on the cheap um, jack up rigs in the Middle East from companies who have uh, either gone insolvent 
or gone under and need to pass on their contracts. And has, has there been a lot of uh, insolvency in this sector? Yeah, there has. So uh, I think the likes of Sea Drill, I think they, they were huge, huge in this area and they, they had to take some bankruptcy protection last month, I believe. Lots of smaller companies which might have one or two rigs and, and you know, and, and, and when things turn turn sour, they have fewer capital resources to, to draw on. Um so this this company, which we talk about, has a very differentiated, innovative model. They've got a really good management team. They're also, uh, I've pretty much given away the, uh, the all the details you can find out about the company. But right. they're based. They're, still don't tell them who it is. Sure. Um, <laughs> they're 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 based in Egypt, so they have a very very low cost base, and they've you know they've got excellent uh, working relationships with the oil majors. So it's like through the keyhole or something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but um, but yeah, yeah. You can re- read about the one extra sentence of detail that I haven't mentioned there in the uh, uh, in the magazine. Excellent. But, um, yeah. Thank thank you, Alex. Um, before we head over to Simon Thompson, um, and before we hear from James uh, on infrastructure, let's let's talk about banking before yes. we uh, before we uh, leave you uh, alone, Emma. Um, we've had a couple of interesting bits of news this week. Lloyd's. Barclays Today, which is obviously not in the magazine, uh, and Metro Bank. Yes, exactly. All live tips, in fact. So maybe we should start with Lloyd's. Yeah, let's start with Lloyd's because that's the big one. I suspect many people will own Lloyd's shares. Yes, very widely held. Yes, Lloyd's, quite a positive update, actually. They were up about 2% yesterday. The, the most positive aspect of, of the update being that, that PPI is essentially over. For them. Well, it's never over. No. I mean, it will it be over one I don't day, know, it's because Arnold Schwarzenegger's headset. Exactly, so. literally. Uh, they didn't have to take any provisions, so that was good news for them. Also, their capital generation, they've upgraded their um, forecasts which is for the year, which is obviously great news because the Lloyds does have that, that good dividend. So that's great in terms of backing the dividend. It's So that would um, suggest, I mean, oh, you say great dividend. It's returning... It's returning, it's returning, but I mean they're delivering on what they said they would do. And and more importantly, do they have the potential to to keep returning decent dividend growth to investors? Yeah, they've got a target of about 13% in terms of their equity rate, their capital ratio. They're on about 14.1%. That increased again during the quarter. That's why we've kind of stuck with them. Their shares are up on the tip. Yeah, bit of a slow burn, but, but getting there. It's a slow there. burn, but I mean, this is the UK banking sector. Um, let's, talk about, let's talk Barclays because that wasn't so positive. Barclays, not so positive. So that was mainly due to its markets business. Lower lower income there. It did miss it missed kind of consensus expectations on income and pre tax profits. So when you say it's markets business, you mean like the investment Sorry, bank, investment it's, banking. Yeah, yeah. Things. So it's investment banking operations, yeah. which unsurprisingly are more volatile than just sticking with UK retail banking, which obviously is what some people thought they should do, but they decided to well, indeed. with the investment banking side. Indeed, there was a big old power struggle over that. Exactly. And, you know, exactly. you look at Lloyd's versus Barclays and, you know, perhaps the uh, the retail banking route was the one to go for. But hey, there you go. Funnily, yeah. funnily enough, my missus has just dumped her, uh, her, her bank account with Barclays in favour of Metro Bank. Let's talk mm, about their updates. Yes. I'm tempted to go the same route. I do like Metro Bank. Do you know what I always say? I don't know whether I can say this, but... Um, as a customer, I think they would look good. I'm not with them. I'm just saying they would look good. I can see why people bank with them. They focus on customer service. They have these, you know, these branches, or as they call them, stores. They're a branch. They're a branch <laughs> that are open um, until about eight pm. I mean, it's brilliant. that's really useful. They're open on the weekends. That's really you can bring your too. dog in. Open on Sundays. Yes, exactly. They're very good. But that this is also the, the point. This is the point why they're a live sell tip is that 
this all costs a lot of money and their costs are rising. And in fact, during the third quarter, yes, they increased their loan book and yes, they increased their income. But at the same time, their operating expenses were higher than their net interest income. So, but isn't this just like a growth business? Though? Isn't that isn't that fine while a company is in in expansionary mood? But the, the issue is, a okay, they're really focused on UK retail banking, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I think if consumer confidence starts to waver, which it has in the UK, I would say, oh, which is reflected, I would suggest, in the profit warning from Pendragon, which we haven't talked about. Yes, so we have talked a lot about cars recently, yeah, so we yeah. want to avoid that yeah. subject. Car, the car market is. Basically, not in a good place. But it's 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 growing and spending. So I just think it's a very high risk strategy. And also, the shares are. I think they're they're over three times forecast net tangible assets, which is at the very very top of the sector. I mean, uh, Lloyd's is one point two. Right. So, so they're expensive, but they're a growth. They're a growth bank. Mm, risky. I don't. I, I, I think it's going to come unstuck. Uh, you've you've spoken to them. You've had them in the studio. I have. Yeah. So, uh, well. It's a view. That's what makes a market. Um, exactly. I think, as I say, the customer experience is good. As a um, customer, I just wouldn't buy the shares. No, but then, but then, what you're suggesting is that, that, that they will run into a, a, a point where they cut, they have to basically, a bit like the outsourcing service degradation, they, they will have to cut back on some of the things that, that differentiate them, and they just yeah. become another bank. Yeah, is that is that the concern? Well, that is that is part of the concern. I mean, Craig Donaldson has said, well, we can't compete on rates, obviously, because rates, yeah, rates are so low. Rates are decent. In terms, in terms of their, let the, you know, their yeah, their, but, uh, but, but then it's not the real, it's not a real differentiator for them. So the only way they can, you would be amazed. You would be amazed. I think people eke out those, you know, those small differences in 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 uh, you know savings yeah. rates. They really do. Perhaps, I think it does perhaps, become a differentiator. Perhaps, but I just don't see. I think that you know they're spending so much money because they have to differentiate their customer experience, and they're just so expensive. I just no. I, I think that's that's a perfectly reasonable view. Okay, thank you, Emma. Um, James, let's uh, let's quickly turn to the cover feature. I mean, we, we've we've uh, we've dropped some hefty uh, hints as to, to where we might be going with this, but let, let's talk very quickly about infrastructure before we head over to Kent and Simon Thompson on the phones. Uh, yeah, James, infrastructure. I mean, you know, we we've written a lot about these companies that offer exposure. Generally speaking, investment trusts uh, that offer exposure to infrastructure. You know, roads, rail, power, any anything like that, which uh, which is essentially the fabric of uh, you know, the, the kind of arteries of, of of the world, as it were. Um, but what you've done this week is, is actually looked at it in, in a portfolio sense to understand why you should have this and, and what you should look out for when you put it in your portfolio. Well, the reason you'd have infrastructure, we're in a, in a, a low interest rate environment. There's no real risk-free rate of return um, for, for long uh, income, you know, for income matching reasons in your portfolio. Uh, you know, you can't get a good return on bonds, uh, cash, negative real return. And we're also looking in terms of portfolios. There's negative. There's the risk of, as Bearball put in his column this this week. Um, there's negative correlations between equities and bonds that people have relied upon for diversification in portfolios. Those are there's a real danger that those could have vanished in the way that, that the current bubble has been inflated. Everything's gone up in price. Well, what does he call it? The the bull market and everything. Yeah. So it's so basically you know correlations as we used to see them have broken down. I think I think that's fairly widely accepted. Um, therefore, you have to look into more unusual. Places. 
places to, to, to get the assets that do the, the things you need well, to do in your the portfolio? The first thing to say is, is that investing infrastructure is still done through uh, listed vehicles. So so there are some managed funds which invest in, in, listed, in listed infrastructure, so companies which are, meet a very tight definition of infrastructure um, or investment trust, as you say. So there is still um, uh, volatility, beta risk, uh, um, but what there has, um, there's a chart in the feature where, where we show that the uh, um, the volatility of, um, of infrastructure, listed infrastructure, is less than the MSCI world. So it's, it's, it, it is, it's, it's sort of a sub-asset class in terms of your accessibility as a private investor, but it's a less volatile one. Which is good. Which is good, and where it does give you something different is, is, uh, is in um, reliable inflation-linked cash flows, um, so you can be more sure of a, of a growing dividend than you can investing in, say, the bond proxy. So we, we spoke about Unilever maybe running into trouble. Um, a lot of people have gone very heavy into utilities, um, which, uh, you know, again, they, those do have good, good ability to generate money, but do they have any more ability? to grow a dividend if inflation rises. I have I have some utilities. I have Centrica. It's disastrous. Mm. Awful investment. So so the idea is is to have is there are more diverse ways to invest in infrastructure than the way a lot of people would have done it which is just buy a UK utility stock. Yeah, yeah. So so what's the answer? What so what are we looking at? I mean you there, there are essentially uh, four listed trusts that you've looked at in this feature that, that are largely UK-centric? Largely UK-centric, and there's a new managed fund that was launched uh, by M&G Invest, which is a global infrastructure fund. Which which, is, which you quite like. I, I do like it. It's, uh, it's got a good, broad... It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's very international, good exposure to North America, which means you've got the benefit of uh, some currency ex, um, exposure there, overseas currency earning exposure. And it's something with, so looking at the infrastructure of the world, we've got uh, airports, toll roads, which in North America actually have the ability to generate... Um, to generate revenue with, with with different sort of pricing of lanes, uh, you have um, so there's three classes of infrastructure: economic, which would be the traditional things, utilities, um, transport, that sort of thing, uh, and then you've got social infrastructure, which is a bit more controversial. This is uh, this is where there's the political risk that comes with investing in infrastructure. Which, schools uh, and hospitals, we're we talking. Yeah, here? schools, hospitals, um, you know, university accommodation, the type of thing that that I think would come into the into the sights of a of a Labour government under Corbyn and Macdonald. Is this something that we should genuinely be mindful of? Well, I think yes, we should because look, we've um, we've got a, a wafer thin majority for the current Conservative government. Um, well, bare, bare, bare working majority, a, a very slim mandate. Um, they're delivering, trying to deliver the hand grenade of Brexit. Uh, if if you know, they pull the pin on that, then uh, we are, you know, we're in a situation where we could have a general election. I don't think the public wants another election, but we might be forced to have one. And in that situation, I mean, I think you, un- what Jeremy Corbyn shown, you underestimate him at his peril. Yeah, indeed. Peril, so, I mean, so, so I guess what that raises the the, the point of is that whilst we talk about infrastructure investments having lower volatility than, than equities that there is there there are still risks that you need to be mindful of they have they go a long way out um, the, the infrastructure so so you um your your cash flows go further out so you have a lot of different projects being added to a trust so invest uh, the advantage of the UK investment trusts is they are a lot of them are priced at a premium but but it's different to other investment trusts say um because uh, you know they they're adding new projects all the time and uh, and so it's not 
you would normally when you would value an equity you do a sort of a discounted cash flow model looking at the time value of money net present yeah. value all so of that th- stuff so but they're making when, new investments when you've got growing yeah when you've got new investments bringing on new reliable government backed inflation linked cash flows they almost go out in perpetuity uh, so it's more like a bond and, and presumably if there is some kind of sh- political shift in any given country that they're investing in they can they can readjust their strategy for for new investments Yes, you can, and it's with the with the a lot of the UK ITs are still very UK centric though, um, and so we noticed um, that the, the price drops on uh, on things like Hickle, um, which is is very UK centric, has a lot of PFI contracts um, investing in things like schools and hospitals. That the, the price fell on that a bit more after the Labour conference than on some of the others, which are a bit more diverse or invested in in less sensitive. Um, politically sensitive projects um, anything invested in, in hospitals or, or schools is very much likely that on, on ideological grounds that a Labour government would want to bring that in so, so, so you actually have to dig under the skin of these these trusts when you when you decide that you want some infrastructure in your portfolio you've actually usefully put a table together which uh, which shows the exposure of the of the main four I borrowed it off of Canaccord Genuity um, thank you Canaccord Genuity yeah, so, uh, but, so they, um, they they show the main investment exposure of, of those four four main listed trusts which it, it does lead you to the question though should we be looking for trusts that ha- that do have a, a, a more global remit or trusts or, or funds or whatever you, you know because I think the M&G fund is is, is, is a fund the M&G fund is global I, I like that one a lot because it's so um, you know it's, it's, it's biggest exposures in, in North America um, so the US and Canada where they have a very benign regulatory backdrop for infrastructure investment. You, may, you mentioned the feature that things like data centres, for example, are, uh, are considered infrastructure. Well, exactly. And, uh, so that's, that is so, quite interesting. So it's emerging infrastructure. And also, really, what these funds all tend to do is to invest in, in up-and-running projects. They're not, we're not talking about investing in, uh, in, in the early stages. That's high risk. I mean, that's, uh, you get sovereign wealth funds and, and pension funds will we'll provide the capital for that. Sometimes, uh, you know, Doing giving governments very poor deals as has uh, happened with Hinkley Point Hinkley in the Point. UK, yeah, but absolutely. again, nuclear I kind of we can take off the table because no no uh, fund marketed at private investors would touch that with a barge pole. Mm. Thank you, James. That's fascinating. Uh, talking of infrastructure, did you see Alex over in the control room? Uh, the the news uh, that Saudi Arabia is essentially going to build an enormous. City? It's called Neom. Ne- What's it called? Neom. Tell yeah. us about this. This is. This sounds mad. Well, I don't know it's too a city, much. City of the future. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen in the Gulf a number of uh, attempts in the past to build a brand new city, which hasn't well, been, quite come to fruition. But, but they've um, been quite. I mean, they have been quite successful. I mean, the Emirates, for example, you know, Dubai, Abu Dhabi. With the, ex- yeah, with the exception of the major financial capitals, I mean, the, the Neom ambition. I think it sits. Very close to the border with Jordan and e- and Egypt, it's right. I think Egypt. it's on the three of them. Yeah. So this is and this is. I think there was a five hundred billion. I mean, I, I kind of give, give up on the price tags which are attached to Saudi grand ambition, but the, that's the ambition anyway. As part of Mohammed bin Salman, the Deputy Crown Prince's ambition to turn Saudi Arabia into a modern economy and away from oil. Is is that what it is? It's 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 part of that. So you know, the, you know, the advertising that's accompanied the launch of it this week. It looks like a normal tourist destination in the Middle East rather than Saudi Arabia is not normally known for somewhere where, you know, it's necessarily easy to do business or move your family to or, or you know, take a beach holiday to. That's part of the the, the grand ambition. But they're, they're holding this... Open, open up? Yeah, it's, it looks like it's opening up. And, you know, they're, in key, they're very, very keen for inward investment. You know, the, the Saudi Aramco... Uh, saga rolls is it, on. Is it related to the Saudi Aramco saga, would you say? They all tie to the broader theme of trying to kickstart other areas of the Saudi economy. So they have a lot of money, but they are very conscious, I think, that the sources of this money are going to 
potentially run dry over the next 30 years. And the oil price shock of the last three years has been the big wake-up call I mean, to that. It sounds quite progressive, almost, which is not a word you would usually associate with Saudi yeah. Arabia. It, it does. I mean, I saw, I saw an interview with um, with MBS, as he's known, uh, with, uh, in The Guardian. And I mean, some of the, co- some of the comments he, he was making about wanting to effectively liberalise uh, Saudi society... I mean, I'd wonder how those go down with the clerics within Saudi Arabia, and that's confrontation, which potentially a powder keg in in the region. But I mean, his his grip on power is is consolidating, so I you know, remains to be seen. It's quite it's it's, it's fascinating, but it's a, it's it's a big big plan at the moment. I think we've got videos and. Uh, big conferences we'll wait to see if these actually turn into something it, a bit more concrete it is amazing yeah but amazing. I, I think we need to come back we'll have, we'll have to have another look at this sure. one at some point in the future okay thank you james thank you uh, alex and now we're going to uh, head over to uh, to simon thompson on the phones how are you doing simon i'm doing well had a cracking week this week john another six companies in depth analysis two in the magazine columns four on the website um two major share breakouts um backed by a raft of contract wins for two of the companies that I'm going to talk about, one of which is BATM Advanced Communications, one Batman. of my bargain shares. Batman, exactly. One of my bargain shares 2017 did nothing in the first uh, six months for the portfolio. Stock price stuck around 18, 19 pence, the, the entry point. Uh, when I interviewed the chief executive back in August, and uh, published an article at the time, he said that the company was in running for some major orders. He wasn't kidding. They've just landed the network and cyber division, a $36 million contract with an agency of the government defense department for the monitoring um, of suspicious network activity and threats. Um, It's got proof of concept trials in multiple countries with other um, with other companies stroke countries as well, and a lot of those are expected to be delivered on. Um, and that's just, you know, scratching the surface. It's also got a really, inter- I, I got really excited about this. It's got a diagnostic business, um, which I hadn't really delved too too much into when I advised buying the shares. It's called Ador. It's with a Netherlands-based private group, Gamida. And what they've done is Gamida, seven years ago, paid over $25 million for all the microarray micro assets connected to Nanogen. It was a U.S. biotech firm that went bust, basically. And they're using that technology um, to develop um, a screening process for hospital-acquired infections like MRSA and C, C. diff um, and to identify tropical infections in travelers returning back from holiday with fevers. Um, they've already validated it. The first four machines... Um, will be installed in European hospitals by the end of the first half of next year. Ten more are in the process of being built for customers in Europe and Israel. U.S. launch is planned for next year. It's protected by 40 patents, so it's, it's, you know, it's completely um, IP-proof. Um, and this has got a competitive... Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
advantage over anything else in the market. The, the benchtop analyzer can probe 100 targets in a single carbon array, whereas current products on the market only probe an average of four to six targets. I reckon one of the big players like Roche Diagnostics, once this is actually up and running and the hospitals have actually, you know, taken taken the um, systems on board and actually proved it, I, I think one of the big players is going to come in and buy this. Do you think so? Um, I mean, ba- Batman has been around for years. I used to cover this, God, 18 years ago, near enough. And I think the chief executive is still the same guy. So, so, so same guy. And, um, but... I mean, that, that's that's just one of its medical diagnostic businesses. It's got another one that um, Adaltis, an Italian manufacturer of um, diagnostic equipment, um, well, they sold a 5% stake in that um, to this Chinese company, um, which basically places a value in the business of 44 million quid. Well, oh, could you, market- so, so you could essentially, what, what they, so that what they might do is build up these businesses and then sell the sell them as a bit of the business? Rather than exactly, the whole exactly, right, right, exactly. gotcha. And um, so, I mean, BATM at the moment has got fifteen percent of its market cap of one hundred million quid in cash, so roughly fifteen million quid in cash. I've done some of the parts valuations on it, and I come out roughly thirty to thirty-three pence minimum. I, I put the readers back in at nineteen pence in February. Um, interestingly, for the last six years, the share price was stuck in a range between thirteen and twenty-one. Well, it just burst out above that 21 resistance level this week. It's now 24 pence in the market. I rate this a buy. Excellent. And plenty of upside, presumably, as well. Oh, yeah. To, to you know, 24 pence um, off the price in the market today, um, minimum 30 to 33 pence is my target price. So we're, we're looking upwards of 25 to 33% upside. And, and that obviously um, doesn't take into account the, the very, very bright prospects for this technology over the much, much longer term. Oh, yeah. I, I can see a number of further contracts, both for the diagnostics vision plus the cyber security business um, coming in in the coming months. So, I mean, that's going to be positive news flow. Um, the, the other one that actually uh, caught my eye was uh, Cysis. Um, uh, yeah, another, another company that's been around seemingly for donkey's years. Well, this listed on AIM back in 1997. It was then known as Codesizes. wasn't it? Yeah. Exactly. And about 10 years ago, they, they sold the Coda part of the business, returned £160 million back to shareholders. And that left them with basically a business focused on the space, defence and commercial sectors, providing bespoke software systems. Um, what interested me was that about three weeks ago, I had the whole board on the telephone for about 50, 60 minutes. And during that conversation, the finance director told me that the company's bid pipeline was better than any we have seen before. So, so what, sort of, what sort of work are they bidding on? Um, well, for example, they've got two contracts with the European Space Agency to deliver software for mission management and control software. Um, that's the Galileo uh, Satellite Navigation Program. Mm-hmm. Um, um, they've just won a contract this week, which is why the share price has taken off, 18 million euros for the German National Satellite Communication Mission, Heinrich Hertz. That's deliverable over the next three years and basically will underpin a chunk of FinCAT's forecast which point to next year earnings rising by about 10%, about 11 pence a share. This share price in the market is about 124 pence. I mean, Uh, it does beg a question though, Simon. You know, they are, when you talk about space exploration... In the European context, it, it is European projects. It's EU projects. Um, you know, the, we don't really have a space agency of our own. There, there has been a lot of talk that, that contracts will not be awarded to British suppliers, and, and yet this seems to be the opposite of that. 
Oh, no, absolutely. And I, I had the chief executive and finance director, and I grilled them on this, and they said, look, we've been part of these European Space Agency um, programs for the best part of 20 years. They're, they're happy with us. We, we're a prime contractor uh, for parts of these programs. Um, okay, you know, the monetary terms in terms, terms of the whole program, it's not a huge amount, but it's still, you know, £5 million contract they've just won for the European Space Agency. So, it's you know, it's, in terms of the small cap companies, it's quite significant. Um I mean, they also have a broadcast business, so they've got a massive contract with the BBC, which basically involves the rollout of software to automate the newsroom process. Um, so it enables... So, for example, if you've, you're watching a programme, um, BBC News, then simultaneously you can be seeing things on the website, BBC website, which is actually feeding off um, those news bulletins, and it's actually their software that does that, and they've got this massive contracts with the BBC, which, and that, that's, that's just one organization. They've got other, others with RTL and major German broadcasters. So, I mean, it's not a one-trick pony, but um, the interesting thing here is I put the readers in early October at about 102 pence or thereabouts, and you could easily buy around that level. They, they didn't really move, but they certainly moved this week after these, these contracts came in. Um, it's burst through, the share price has burst through a living year high of 118. It's about 124 pence at the moment. My target price is 155, so another 25% upside. In terms of the earnings, it's rated currently about 11 times earnings estimates for 2018, uh, 1.6 times book value, dividend yield roughly 2%. Um, it's not expensive. Um, and I, I just expect more of these contracts to be landed. Okay. Well, it's good to have some good news, Simon, because the rest of the podcast was talking about profit warnings. So uh, thank, thank you very much and uh, have a great weekend, even though it's only Thursday. Speak to you soon. We'll, we'll do. Well, ha- have an early weekend. Yeah, the, let, yeah, that would be nice. Anyway, thanks, Simon. Speak soon. Cheers. See Cheers. you later. Bye. Okay, there we have it. Uh, lots in the issue. Uh, and, I, and I tell you, we've hardly scratched the surface of what we've got at the magazine this week. As I said, we've got James's feature, but we also have uh, Phil Oakley's uh, feature on how to identify safe high yielders. We've got Philip Ryland returning to his 50 Objects series to, to round that up with some, some very interesting financial history there. Loads in the personal finance and fund section, um, which they will be talking about on their podcast tomorrow. Not least um, the idea of inflation protection as we uh, as we uh, we suffer the consequences of voting to leave the European Union temporarily. Um Lots in the uh, the tip section. Lots in the we've, got, we've even got some results this week. It's it's yeah, as I say, a jam packed issue. We've discussed some of it, but to, to find out more, you'd have to pick up the magazine. Building the world, four pound nineteen. All good news agents. Get online and subscribe. Thank you for listening. Speak soon.